Well, we are beginning here tonight in part 8 of our Hebrew study, chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. And uh, we're going to kind of look a little bit at the American church and see Jesus as our high priest. Uh, remember, the Word of God uh, is Jesus, the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, we're going to begin, uh, rather than looking in Hebrews right away, we want to look in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And as we do, it says this, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things say the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You see, why does Jesus know our works if they don't matter? Like the, the church often says today, it doesn't matter. We're, we're saved by grace, and therefore it, it doesn't really matter how we behave or what we do. But yet, God is saying, I know your works. You know, it's amazing to me that right now, as I'm doing this study, there are people in other countries, Koreans, Chinese, and, and whatnot, that are willing to die just to have a Bible. But yet, we have a hard time tearing away from our gym or our Facebook or TV or whatever the case might be uh, to even think about reading a chapter of ours. You see, I, I think that today we have become this lukewarm church of Laodicea, that we're not hot for God, we're not even cold for God. He wishes that we were one or the other, but this, this lukewarm, this, this uh, proclaiming God, but denying its power, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, going to church, but not following and obeying God, is disgusting to him, like lukewarm water. And so uh, that's kind of a theme here that I want you to see. You'll understand why we go there here in a moment. Uh, we're going to go to 1 Timothy 5.18. It says this, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, first of all, again, note, over and over and over again, what we see in the New Testament is it going to the Old Testament to explain truth to us. And yet today, somehow, we've kind of neglected that Old Testament. Deuteronomy 25 is what's being quoted here about this muzzling an ox. But what's interesting is it's nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. I defy you to go and, and look in the Old Testament and, and try and find where it talks about muzzling this ox. Okay, but it does it say about the laborer um, here, so where is this coming from? Okay, it talks about the ox, but nothing about the laborer in the Old Testament. So, where? Well, Jesus himself said this. So Timothy basically is recalling what Jesus said. And interestingly, Timothy is equating then the scripture says to what Jesus said. So even here, Timothy in a sense and is calling Jesus the word of God. So like I said, you'll, you'll find the ox talked about there, treading out the grain, 
not to do that in Deuteronomy 25, but you will find no place that it connects it to the laborer being worthy of, its, of his wages. Those are Jesus' words that Timothy is equating with Scripture here. In Luke 10, 7 is where he says that, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter, they receive you. Eat such things as are set before you. But anyway, so we see here that, again, Jesus' words are basically equated, put on the equivalency of Scripture. We can see uh, just a, a chapter later in Timothy here, chapter 6, verse 3, it says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing. What we're introducing here is a structure of faith that is seen all throughout Scripture. Remember, Jesus says, I know your works, and yet we want to kind of get rid of these works. I'm going to show you here in the New Testament and in the Old that there is a structure of faith that connects faith and works together. And so when Paul uses this word doctrine here, it's explicitly referring to the Old Testament. And so it says, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, we typically think New Testament there, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. And so we're seeing kind of a New Testament and an Old Testament combined to make them one. We see that you cannot separate the living word from the written word, the living word Jesus, to the written word, the doctrines of the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah 8.20 says, to the law and to the testimony. Okay, again, you've got the written, the law, and the spoken, the, the, the uh, living word, the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So again, we see the law and the testimony, the testimony being Jesus. How about John 6, verse 63? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. In other words, every word from Jesus is life. And keep in mind that his word is equated with the Old Testament as well. Whether it be New Testament word, uh, the written, or the living in the new, it is Jesus, the word that became flesh. Now, I'm going to kind of go here and look at a little bit of church history to show you that uh, St. Ignatius here, um, he didn't have it all right, but he did go after the Gnostics. He was around 35 to 100 AD, and the Gnostics were these groups that uh, they considered themselves to have this special knowledge, and they um, basically were, were heretics. But this is what he says in the Epistle of Ignatius here. He says, Some ignorantly deny him, Jesus, or rather have been denied by him, being the advocates of death rather than of truth. These persons neither have the prophets persuaded, nor the law of Moses, nor the gospel even to this day, nor the suffering we have individually endured. The reason I bring Ignatius up here is here is an early church father. We're going way back to just, you know, shortly after Christ, really. And he's saying that these people 
who God does not know, basically the lost. They neither have the prophets, nor the law of Moses, nor the gospel. In other words, he's kind of, again, equating the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, with the gospel. And so he's saying these Gnostics, they don't have the prophets or the law. And therefore, basically acknowledging all of them, the law, the prophets, and the gospel, all to be scripture of equal value. Now, we can look here as well, Eusebius, where Jesus' words are going to be put on the level of the law and the prophets once again. There is no difference. He says, And when I had come to Rome, I remained there until Anicetus, whose deacon with was Eleutherus, and Anicetus was succeeded by Soter, and he by Eleutherus, in every secession and in every city that is held, which is preached by the law and the prophets and the Lord. So even Eusebius is taking law, prophets, Jesus, all the same. And what we're, we're doing today is we're saying, well, you know, we've got these people who have the red-letter Bible. That only Jesus' words count. The Old Testament's been done away with. We don't need to follow that. We don't need to listen to that. It's null and void. It, no, it is not. It is on the equivalent of Jesus' words. And so let's get into Hebrews here, finally, and look at what chapter 4, verse 13 says. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The reason I was talking about this word of God is last week we saw that the word was sharper than a double-edged sword. Okay, That it, is, uh, it penetrates between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. And then from there he now picks up where he left off and he takes us back to the Garden of Eden here to talk about the Word. When he talks about all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to must give an account, I think most of the Jewish readers, a uh, Hebrew reader at this time, their, their mind would have gone back to the Garden of Eden where they had to sow fig leaves because they were ashamed of their nakedness. And so from the Word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword, he's saying that this same Word... Is, is penetrating, and it is the Word of God that opens or exposes us. It exposes our nakedness, our shame, so that the eye of God um, sees everything. And we are going to give an account of what we do to the one who sees all. Let, let's go look at this section here in Genesis that uh, take you back to the garden that I think the readers would have had their minds go to. He says here in Genesis 3-7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So, <clears throat> they run and hide due to their shame. Just like in Revelation, we see that when the Lord comes, people are crying for the mountains to fall on them, to hide themselves from the wrath of God. This is what Adam and Eve were doing because they were fearful. They knew they had broken His commands. 
You see, they hear his voice. The sound of the Lord there in verse 8. Okay, again, his voice, the word of God. And that word, that sword that comes out from his mouth should uh, instill fear and awe and reverence in our minds today. But somehow we've lost that. And what I want to do, just to kind of show you, kind of, uh, again, what the Jews would have understood in this verse, is I want to take you to the Targum. Again, the Targum is the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. All right? But, uh, it, like I said, it's going to give you an understanding of what they saw. And so, here we have Genesis 3-7. And the Targum here for verse 8, I have underneath it. It says, and they heard the voice of the word of the Lord God walking in the garden. The Targum does this all the time where it takes the, the word of God and it associates it with being God himself. Not just an inanimate sound or voice. Okay, They're showing that Jesus, Yeshua, was the one who presented himself in the garden to Adam and Eve. It was his voice that they heard. It was his voice that they trembled at. You know, I think today we have this idea that Jesus' voice is one that just, you know, is butterflies and pink warm fuzzies. No, he is going to judge the world. His word is the word of the Old Testament. His word it penetrates between bone and marrow. Look at what verse 9 says here. Then the Lord called to Abram, or to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Again, prior to eating, the glory of God covered Adam and Eve. But once they ate, they disobeyed God, that glory left. It's gone. And the Targum, again, sees this covering as the commandments, as we are going to see here in uh, this next slide as I show you. Because, note, they had already sowed fig leaves, but yet they still see themselves as naked. Because, guys, our efforts, our work does not cut it. You can't be good enough. Okay, we need Jesus' blood to cover us. Just like Adam and Eve's covering wasn't sufficient, nothing we do is either. And so I just need to remind you of that. But let's look at the Targum here. What does it say for verse 9? The Lord called to Adam and said to him, Is not all the world which I have made manifest before me the darkness as the light? And how hast thou thought in thine heart to hide from before me? The place where thou art concealed, do I not see? Where are the commandments that I commanded thee? So can you see that how they're saying this covering is the commandments? The commandments were what covered them before. As long as they were in obedience, they were covered. And so there is some truth to this, even in the New Testament for us today. That's when we walk in the light... Okay, as he is in the light, then we receive these blessings in a covering, a protection. It's when we go outside of the protection of those commandments that we're opened up to the devil to attack. I, I look at it oftentimes as an umbrella. That umbrella is are the commandments of God. And, it, and 
if we're under those umbrella, that uh, those commandments, I, I'm saved, but I'm protected from the the rain, the what can fall on me, that can get me wet, can damage. If I remove that umbrella, I still can be saved, but it opens me up to attack, getting wet and harmed. Anyway, moving on here to verse 13 of Hebrews 4, it says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Just like I said before, Adam's fig leaves didn't cut it. The only thing that's going to cut it is hearing the voice of God and his righteousness, because you will give an account his word is what exposes our nakedness, exposes our shame, exposes our sin. And if we aren't covered and, and with the blood of Jesus, if he hasn't taken that away, you will give an account. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Anyway, let's look at Revelation 3, verse 18 in comparison with this verse. It says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich in white garments that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. You see, Revelation 19 talks about these white robes and those white robes are the righteous acts of the saints. Here we see that we are to have white garments that we are clothed with, well, we know that those are righteous acts. So if we're supposed to just, oh, hey, Jesus died for me, and therefore I can go live my life however I want, whatever, whatever I want to watch on TV, whatever jokes I want to tell, you know, what, uh, whatever uh, ungodly crowd I want to hang out with, okay, that's not being clothed with white garments. Okay, what, it's, what covers the shame of our nakedness? Those white garments. What are those white garments? The righteous acts of the saints. Now, again, I'm not trying to put you under the law and saying that you can earn your salvation. What I'm saying is this, that through Christ, he empowers us to obey and that our works do matter. What we do matters because it does cover our nakedness. Now, thanks be to God that when we fail, okay, that his blood has taken away our failures. Okay, but that doesn't mean that our works aren't important. We continue, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Tell you what, so many people fear the government that, you know, they're listening in on our conversations and they're tracking us and whatnot. I'll tell you what you really should be fearing is the word Jesus Christ, God. We should fear that God hears all. He knows all. He, he knows our thoughts. He knows our inner being in every way, shape, and form. And it says here that he is going to bring all, every good work, every bad work into judgment. Everything will be exposed by him. So we ought to be thinking, that, you know, those people who are caught in pornography, 
I hope that next time you uh, take and, and think about looking at that, that you'll know God's sitting right there watching you. Okay? These are not things that are um, uh, worthy of a Christian. Anyway, verse 14 of Hebrews says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. I love this, that he says that we have a great high priest. That word is added to, to emphasize, to make this uh, a separation from any other high priest. We have the great high priest. He puts more effort in showing this title than anything else as we are going to see here later. This is an ex a very exclusive club to be the great high priest. You see, only Aaron in the Old Testament, the high priest, was to serve. Uh, we see that in Exodus chapter 28. We're going to go there in a minute. But you see, they were also judges of Israel. If you had a complaint, you would go before the priests. You see, they were teachers. They burned incense. They trimmed lamps to establish light in the temple. They made the sacrifices. These are all things that Jesus does. Okay, we know the incense was prayer. He has become our mediator. They, they, the light in the temple, it was the word of God. He is that word of God. He is the sacrifice. And so while Aaron was just kind of doing all the things that foreshadowed the great high priest, he could never be the great high priest. Even when Jesus, when he was on trial, he went before Caiaphas. Now, Jesus is our judge and teacher, our mediator, our light, and our sacrifice. Caiaphas was the high priest at the time. But Jesus, the great high priest, he could do much more and did much more than Caiaphas ever could. Okay, Caiaphas wasn't the judge. Jesus was the judge. Caiaphas wasn't the teacher. Jesus is. Caiaphas isn't the mediator. Jesus is. Caiaphas wasn't the light, and he isn't offering sacrifices. Jesus did. So when it compares that, and that's what it's doing here, is he's saying he's our great high priest, making a distinction between him and other priests. Look here in Exodus 28, verse 2, it says, Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Till all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters, that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration, so he may serve me as priest. These are the garments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so they may serve me as priests. Now what's interesting is, as we go through all of these pieces, the rabbis saw every one of these as an atonement piece. Okay, uh, We see the robe was to cover their nakedness, so that they would not be exposed. In a sense, their sin would not be exposed. The turban that they wore on their head was a symbol of holiness. It even said, holy to the Lord on it. Okay, you can't be holy if you haven't been atoned for. The breastplate was used for judgment. And so it would, it would uh, bring um, <clears throat> judgment and answers to uh, in certain things, the Urim and the Thummim that was in it anyway. 
but um, it, it all embodied or was a picture of grace in some way, shape, or form. That the judgment, the priest would go in and that judgment would be taken away. The point is that they were the embodiment of forgiveness, and that is exactly what Jesus Yeshua is. This is why Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I lay down my life. See, we need our high priest, our great high priest, because without him, without that great high priest, we're lost. Just like without the priest of Aaron, the Israelites would have been separated from God because he was the mediator. Now Jesus becomes that mediator. So as we look here again in verse 14, it also says this, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, holding fast to our confession, this is a warning. He's saying you need to hold fast to this because if you don't, you might lose it. We see this all the time in the Old Testament as well, that the people say, we will go. And then they go to go into the promised land, but uh, they see that there are giants and they say, okay, we won't go. And as a result, because they get scared, they lose their blessing. You see, what he's saying is that Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession of him. Hold fast, because if you don't hold fast, if you don't hang on to that, if you don't keep it in the forefront of your mind, you're going to lose it. It's possible to lose that. He says, remember, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness. Jesus was tempted in every way, shape, and form. He came in the flesh. He understands what it means to be tempted, but he passes. He did it without sin. And because of that, we're to keep that in the forefront of our mind that says God knows what we're going through. And he's our great high priest, and he wears all of these, uh, you know, the, the turban, and, and he's holy. He, he, he has atonement. He, he is the light. He does all of these things so that though we are tempted, we know that we can go to him, and he has the power, the strength, the desire to help us, to atone for us. Now, how did the priests do that? They went into the holy place, the most holy place. Hebrews 4, 16, it continues, it says, Let us therefore, therefore, because we're going to hold fast to this great high priest, because we know that we have a, a great high priest who can sympathize with us, we are to go boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in, in time of need. You see, that one time a year on the Day of Atonement, that high priest would go in with blood to the Ark of the Covenant that was in that most holy place called the Throne of Grace. And they could go in boldly knowing that they were called to do so, knowing that God was with them, knowing that there had been a sacrifice made and they were taking that blood into that most holy place. 
And it was there that they would obtain mercy and find grace in their time of need. It kind of reminds me of uh, the book of Esther. We see that Esther, when Haman wanted to eradicate the Jews, um, Mordecai goes and talks to Esther, and what we see is that um, she has to go before the throne room of the king. And she had to do so boldly, knowing she could die if grace was not extended to her. And that is the picture of what we are to be able to do, to enter this throne room because of our great high priest. Uh, we see in Psalm 99 verse 1, it says that he sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. You see, this is God's seat, his throne room, his mercy seat between the cherub. And inside those uh, that Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments. The lid of it was called the mercy seat. Uh, and even the Hebrew uh, kapoor, from where we get the word atonement, or yom kapoor, the day of atonement. Okay, That's where atonement took place, right there uh, between those cherub, at that mercy seat, the seat of God. But you see, this is also where Satan wants to keep you from. Hebrews is saying, boldly enter, boldly go to the throne of grace. But Satan says, no, 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 you're not worthy. No, 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 you, you, you shouldn't go in there. Okay, the devil says there's no hope for you. Well, this is what mercy is all about. And this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. Because of Jesus being our great high priest, because he has made those sacrifices, he is that sacrifice, you now can boldly go and receive mercy and grace. In mercy, the throne will be established, it says in Isaiah 16, verse 5. And so God established his throne by having his son be that great high priest, offering himself as a sacrifice to remove the condemnation of all our sins and failures so that we can boldly go in with thanksgiving and praise. Anyway, let's continue here in chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. See the difference? We saw that Jesus did, but yet he was without sin. He was tempted in every way, but without sin. But now we see every other high priest, he's again comparing Jesus to the priesthood of Aaron. Every high priest before, they were appointed for men in things pertaining to God. Well, Jesus too was appointed, but not by men, but by God. For God so loved the world that he gave himself, or gave his only begotten son. Okay, and then it says that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Okay, both of them, gifts, okay, thanksgiving, praise, and sacrifices for sins. And so it goes on and he says he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. Why? Because he was subject to weakness. You see, Aaron understood the weaknesses. Aaron understood temptations. And yet Jesus did too, however without sin. 
So again, as we move into chapter 5, he's building on what we saw in chapter 4, just making this comparison between Aaron, or the Levitical priesthood, and a new priesthood that we're going to be getting into here, that Jesus is part of. In verse 3, it says, Because of this he is required, the priesthood of Aaron, as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifice for sins. You see, Aaron, before he could go in, had to make a sacrifice for himself to be forgiven so that he would be holy to enter boldly into the most holy place. But Jesus doesn't have to do that since he's without sin. There's no sacrifice for him, only for the people. Verse 4 goes on, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So, God called Aaron just as God called Jesus. Again, building on what we saw in the previous verses. As we move on to verse 5, it says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So again, building on verse 4, Christ didn't glorify himself. Christ didn't appoint himself. God did that. God appointed him as high priest, when he said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You see, he was just talking about Aaron and the priesthood. But now, he's switching and introducing again, comparing Jesus as priest, but in a complete different order. Not the Levitical or Aaronic priesthood, which was something that was instituted at Mount Sinai, but in the priesthood of Melchizedek. As we see here in verse 6, it says, As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now guys, this Melchizedek, this is huge. This is an amazing thing for Jesus to be in the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, many of the Jews today, the Orthodox and whatnot, they often associate Melchizedek as being Shem, Noah's son. Now, I completely disagree with this. Uh, first of all, the timing is wrong. Uh, what is described of Melchizedek here in Hebrews does not fit Shem at all. It fits Jesus and Ye or Yeshua only, as you're going to see. But this is new information presented here now for the first time in Hebrews. Now, Melchizedek is mentioned only two times elsewhere in Scripture, in Psalm 110 and in Genesis 14. Okay, so we know very little about him. And actually here Hebrews gives us a lot more information than we even get in Psalm 110 or in Genesis 14. So where is the author of Hebrews getting the information that he's going to share? Where is he getting it if it's not coming from Psalm 110 or Genesis 14? Well, they had other records. And what we're going to do is I'm going to take you to look at some Dead Sea Scrolls and you're going to, we're going to compare and see that the priesthood of Melchizedek is far superior to the priesthood of Aaron. The Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, I think, are one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time. Um, they have shown so much for the accuracy of Scripture um, and, and just even tidbits like this here, especially 11Q13. This particular part of the Dead Sea Scrolls is called the coming of Melchizedek. 
not like Melchizedek of the past, but it saw Melchizedek as someone who was coming, a future, not Shem, somebody who was to come. And so this is a very important Dead Sea Scroll fragment because you're going to see that the author of Hebrews, I believe, was borrowing information from this. And it's going to show you that the Jewish sages of Jesus' day had a better and greater understanding of who Melchizedek was than what we do today. By the way, the idea that he was Shem seems to have come about uh, much later than this. Let's look at what the Dead Sea Scrolls says here. <clears throat> it says, Concerning what Scripture says, in this year of Jubilee, you shall return every one of you to your property and what is, what is also written. And this is the manner of remission. Every creditor shall admit the claim that is held against a neighbor, nor exacting it of a neighbor who is a member of the community, because God's remission has been proclaimed. Now what he's talking about here is what Leviticus 25 talks about. Okay, the Jubilee year. And that's why he says, and concerning what Scripture says. In Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee. You see, at the year of Jubilee, you could have been a slave and you get to go free. You, you could have had debts uh, from your creditors and now they are all forgiven. And so he's pointing out that the whole point of the Jubilee was to restore those who had become so poor to, as to uh, have to become a servant or in debt and you were able to be free. It's total liberty, total freedom. And so that's what the context is here. He's saying that the Jubilee brings freedom. It continues, the interpretation is that it applies to the last days and concerns the captives, just as Isaiah said, to proclaim the Jubilee to the captives. Now this is amazing, guys, because what the Dead Sea Scrolls are saying is this, that the Jubilee was, was done to point us to something in the last days. So what it says, the interpretation is that it applies to the last days and concerns the captives. Well, he's quoting Isaiah here. This is something that you should be familiar with because it's quoted in Luke 4, verse 18. I will show you that in a moment. But what I want you to see is that, again, the Dead Sea Scrolls here, this uh, Melchizedek, the coming of Melchizedek scroll, is quoting Isaiah which is a prophecy about Jesus himself. And lest you doubt that, let's see what Jesus himself said here in Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. By the way, this is when he goes into the synagogue and they hand him the scroll. He unrolls the scroll and he reads this and, and he, he rolls it up and, and this is what he's saying. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Okay, now Jesus rolls up this scroll after reading this, and it says here in verse 20 of Luke 4, Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. 
and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, when Isaiah was talking to proclaim liberty to the captives, Jesus is saying, I'm fulfilling it today. I am here to proclaim the forgiveness of sins, total and utter freedom from your debts. And this is exactly what that Dead Sea Scroll was saying, is that it referred to a coming time. Keep in mind that this coming of Melchizedek's scroll was written before Jesus was born. Let's go back to it here and see what it says. Isaiah said to proclaim the jubilee to the captives and whose teachers have been hidden and kept secret even from the inheritance of Melchizedek and they are the inheritance of Melchizedek. In other words, those who are freed, he says they are the inheritance of Melchizedek. So who is this Melchizedek? Well, whoever Melchizedek is freeing belong to him. Exodus 34, 9 says, Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let me, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. The greatness that was described of Melchizedek fits Yeshua Jesus, taking us as his inheritance. And yet this was written before Jesus came telling us whoever this Melchizedek is, he is going to bring freedom, and those who bring, uh, he brings freedom to are going to belong to him. That's exactly what Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 tells us as well. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The whole of chapter 1 of Ephesians talks about the inheritance of the saints because of Yeshua. So, clearly, th this Dead Sea Scroll, the coming of Melchizedek, is uh, amazing stuff. Things that we're not getting in Psalm 110 or Genesis 14. Things that the author of Hebrews, I am convinced, had full knowledge of. It goes on here. The scroll of Melchizedek. They are the inheritance of Melchizedek who will return them to what is rightfully theirs. He will, pro will proclaim to them the jubilee thereby releasing them from the debt of all their sins. Not just the debt of, you know, uh, of money, but the debt of their sins. Yeshua claims to forgive sins to the man he heals, claiming in essence to be him to be this priest of Melchizedek. So keep in mind, once more, <coughs> excuse me, this Dead Sea Scroll portion was written before he comes, and yet this Melchizedek is to forgive sins. This can only be Yeshua. It goes on, Then the Day of Atonement shall follow at the end of the Tenth Jubilee period, when he shall atone for all the sons of light, and the people who are predestined to Melchizedek. So now it's saying there are people who are predestined to Melchizedek. 
Well, that's exactly what Ephesians 1.11 says. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Amazing. It goes on. For this is the time decreed for the year of Melchizedek's favor and for his hosts together with the holy ones of God for a kingdom of judgment just as it is written concerning him in the songs of David. A God-like being has taken place in the council of God. In the midst of the divine being, he holds judgment. Guys, do you remember Psalm 110 where he says, the Lord said to my Lord. You see, He's a God-like being. Jesus is God. And it says that he holds judgment. Well, that's exactly what Jesus does. He is the judge of the living and the dead. We see in Romans that he is going to be our judge. And so the writer understood that this was all going to happen in the year of Melchizedek's favor. And yet this is exactly what we see Jesus doing, proclaiming the year of favor. It goes on and it says, Scripture says about him, over it take your seat in the highest heaven. A divine being will judge the peoples. John 5.22 says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, to the one who is the priest of Melchizedek. And it says he takes your seat. Well, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Guys, there is no question. Melchizedek is not Shem. The Dead Sea Scrolls here showing it very clearly. It is Jesus Yeshua. That's who Melchizedek is. It goes on and it says, concerning what Scripture says, again, always going back to Scripture, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? The interpretation applies to Belial and the spirits predestined to him because of all them that have rebelled, turning from God's precepts and so becoming utterly wicked. So what makes you wicked? Turning from God's laws. And he's saying that how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality? He says the interpretation of that is Belial. That's basically the devil. That's another word for him. And the spirits predestined to him because they've rebelled. Okay, He's quoting, when it says what the scripture says, he's quoting Psalm 82 here. And so as we continue, he says, Therefore Melchizedek will thoroughly prosecute the vengeance required by God's statutes. In that day he will deliver them from the power of Belial and from the power of all spirits predestined to him. Allied with him will be all the righteous divine beings. Okay, in other words, that this Melchizedek, when he comes, is going to deliver you from the devil and the power of sin. That is exactly what Yeshua did. Acts 26, 17 says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan, Belial, to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. <coughs> Again, how will... Melchizedek judge by the statutes of the law, the same way Jesus does and will. 
You see, this is amazing because what the early Jews were expecting Melchizedek to come and do is exactly what Yeshua did. And they had these writings before he came. Every facet of Melchizedek's life was seen in Jesus. And like I said, the writer of Hebrews understood what he was writing about Melchizedek and connecting him to Jesus. That was what they were saying. And they were familiar with this. There's no question. And so, while Jesus is going to judge according to the same way Melchizedek did, according to those the, the law, we understand that because of Jesus, those who believe him, who have been delivered by him, there is no condemnation in the law anymore. Doesn't mean we don't keep the law. We do. We, 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 we love it. We should follow it. But there's no condemnation when we fail because of our priesthood of Melchizedek, Yeshua. Yeah. Couple other little details here, and this we do see in uh, Genesis that Melchizedek means my king is righteous. It's a compound word, Melch and Tzedek. And we see in Hebrews 7 1 for this Melchizedek, we're going to talk more about this later when we get there, but for now, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So what we see is that Jesus was not just a priest, but he was a king. Sat down at the throne of God, right? Okay, but he's even the king of Salem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So Jesus is king of Salem. No one is both king and priest, except for a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. We see David was. You say, how is he a priest? Well, he wears a linen ephod. He makes a sacrifice. And so uh, it's intentionally trying to make him a Christ picture. But nobody is a king and priest but Jesus, really. That's what David's life was, was a picture of him. And so remember the king who offered incense uh, on, you know, unauthorized. He, he was struck with leprosy because he was king, not priest. This is unique. And this Melchizedek is not only a priest, but a king. That is unheard of. Shem certainly wasn't that, but Yeshua Jesus was and is. We read Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. By the way, that's a, this is a prophecy of Yeshua Jesus. That word branch is tzemech, which is only used in reference to Jesus, his coming. It goes from his place, he shall branch out. He shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory, and he shall sit and rule on his throne, because he's a king, right? goes on, so he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. In other words, the council of peace will be between both offices, the office of priest and the office of king. But this is an amazing, I mean, anybody reading this Zechariah 6 would, would just say, whoa, wait, wait a minute. A priest on his throne? Priests don't sit on thrones. Well, ours does. This, this one that was to come, this prophecy of the branch, that Semek, will be a priest and a king. And yet we see Melchizedek is a priest and 
a king. It is Jesus. Even the prophecy of the Messiah here in Zechariah said he was going to be both. And this is what Melchizedek is all about. Hebrews 7.2 says to him also, Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness. Okay, we know Jesus is the king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, which Jesus is, prince of peace, right? Verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest forever or continually. Okay, Shem had a father, he had a mother, he had a genealogy, a beginning of life, an end of life, but Melchizedek did not. The only person that fits this, a priest, a king, without genealogy, without mother, without father, without beginning or end, is Jesus Yeshua. And it says he remains a priest right now, forever, continually. Not a priest that year after year has to go in and make sacrifices, but a priest that made one sacrifice once for all. Micah 5 verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are a little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth of, to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting, forever, continually. You see, Melchizedek isn't eternal or everlasting and a priest forever unless it's Jesus Christ. Not even John the Baptist comes close to this, even though we're told that he was greatest among all, you know, born of women. And so I show you this because uh, this is a very important part to understand where we're going in Hebrews, uh, to see that the author is starting to compare the priesthood of Aaron to this priesthood of Melchizedek. And if we're going to properly understand that, we need to understand who is Melchizedek. What made him different from Aaron? And the answer is everything. Everything. And so we will pick up uh, on the more next week.